This is a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k103.se. Due to copyright, the music is shortened. Good evening, folks. It's Ordinary Observations time. It's a Wednesday evening, and it's time to go again. Back by popular demand, it's Insane Dictators Part 2. Oh, yeah. Long-time listeners will know that one of our earliest shows, I think the second the ever second episode, one. Yep. Yep, was about uh, deranged leaders of the modern era. So if you enjoyed this show and uh, you want to hear some of our favorites, please feel free to go back and listen to that one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or if you haven't listened to last week, I feel like that's quite in a similar sort of wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, the the torturous devices from Greco-Roman history. Yeah, I, I guess. As, as always, apologies there's, there's to start a, off. There's it was a real a big, big gruesome. crossover. Yeah. Crossover there. It was a bit gruesome last week. Shout out to all those people who actually made it through. Mm, and fair, apo- fair play to you. And apologies to all those who didn't. Yeah. Mm. And um, I've heard from a couple different sources that the crucifixion segment was particularly gruesome. Yeah. I, I guess some people forced their way through the brazen bull yeah and then we we did say this is going to be the worst one so they yeah. forced their way through the brazen no, bull like, oh, maybe better yeah no, maybe better and then um it was it wasn't that much better also i'm gonna apologize myself for mm-hmm. saying the word bronzen bull i mistook brazen and bronze for bronzen bull i don't know what was going on what there. a fucking idiot man <laughs> Um, yeah, in the first episode, we discussed Idi Amin, Muammar Gaddafi, Prince Farouk of Egypt, and a little bit of the Kim dynasty, yeah. but we didn't really get to it. A few of the public favorites there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The real big hitters. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The big names of yeah. recent ty- 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 tyrantism. Tyrannical d- Whatever. dynasties. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, we've got this time a few big hitters for sure. Yeah. A few well-known members of dictator empires of yeah. the world look mate similar to last week doing the research for this episode this made me sick to the core yeah I... you, you know that you know the whole thing of like mm, it was in ancient times i mean last last week's mm. episode and it was like ah well i'm sure we've progressed no we absolutely haven't talking 30 40 years ago some of this stuff present day almost yeah it's definitely you know the, at least with the ancient history kind of thing you know tragedy plus a bit of time Ah. Oh. You feel you feel disconnected from it, don't you? Yeah. Uh, but when you're talking modern day countries, yeah, when there's modern day history, there's mm. people that have you know lived through some of these atrocities. Yeah, very much. Mm. Yeah. So again, some are famous. Some I found out about these like this weekend. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff that you're surprised to have not have known about beforehand. For sure. For sure. <laughs> oh, fuck. Ah. <laughs> what have I done? Sorry about that, people. I don't know. I'm quite sure how that happened. Anyway, starting off, a big name, for sure. It's Saddam Hussein. <laughs> it's Saddam Hussein, the butcher of Baghdad. I think we should start off with a tune. Yeah, and then you've got Saddam Hussein to look forward to. Yeah. All right. This one's Glam House and Young Titties. <laughs> That's right, you are listening to K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Mark, what the fuck was that song? <laughs> really sorry about that song choice. That was kind of a little bit schizophrenic. Oh, uh, boss <laughs> ass bitch. With the big ass tits. With the big ass, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay, well. well <laughs> I did not expect it to be that. No, I wasn't quite anticipating yeah. that either, but all right. 
Yes, so, this episode is The Insane Dictators <laughs> of the Modern Era. This song really flows into Saddam Hussein. Yeah, part two. And we're going to start off with Saddam Hussein. Yeah, we are going to start off with Saddam Hussein. The Butcher of Baghdad, mm-hmm. as is colloquially known. Uh, I spent four hours hung over on the couch yesterday morning, just like watching YouTube explainers of his war crimes. You lived the best life. Yeah. It? Oh, man, that's... <laughs> the life of a journalist. Yeah, exactly, man. <laughs> so let's get into it. If you're eating dinner, I'd suggest stop doing that. Put it away. Yeah. Saddam Hussein was born in 1937 in Al-Awja, which is a small village a couple hours north of Baghdad. His father and his 12-year-old brother had both died, actually, not long before he was born. And his mother was obviously going through a pretty rough patch and attempted to first abort the baby and then take her own life. Uh, Both of these attempts failed, obviously, and the baby boy was born. She named him Saddam, which means the one who confronts. That's horrible, man. Yeah, poor woman, obviously. Very, very horrible, rough situation to be in. And then to give birth to Saddam Hussein. Yeah, people. fucking chances, man. His mother wanted nothing to do with him, and so gave him to his uncle who lived in Baghdad. His uncle raised him for the first three years of his life, but was then sent to prison for some political bullshit a very rough start to life for the poor lad yeah for sure you can uh, sympathize with that unfortunately it doesn't get better for a, a little while his mother remarried and he moved back in with her and his new stepfather at the age of three his stepfather beat him regularly mm. uh, which feels a bit of like of course he was abused as a child sort of moments right yeah mm. probably goes a long way in explaining his rather friendly disposition to violence later in his life now, around age 10, he had heard that his uncle had been released from prison, and so he ran away to Baghdad to live with him again. This uncle played the fatherly role for young Saddam and played a huge role in his political standing. He sent him to a very nationalistic high school. After this, he enrolled to study at law at university, but dropped out to join the Ba'ath Party. Now, Ba'athism is like a pan-Arab nationalist ideology which promotes the idea of a unified Arab state, right? B-A-A-T-H, right? Yeah, double A. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see it spelt with a apostrophe, a apostrophe mm-hmm. between the two A's. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had some like vague socialist ideologies, but were super hazy on that, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Whatever. The Ba'athist movement came from Syria, but was still relatively small in Iraq at the time. There were other nationalist movements that were more popular, but his uncle was a Ba'athist supporter, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where he got a lot of those ideologies, ideologies from. Yeah. from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, his uncle had fought against the British in the Anglo-Iraqi War of 1941, so he was super Iraqi nationalist. And then later, Saddam was inspired by the Egyptian nationalists who had fought the Brits and the French during the Suez Crisis. Mm -hmm. Of 56, right? Uh, I think. Anyway, doesn't Ah, matter. And that was really inspiring for him, kicking out the colonial powers, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. mm -hmm. After the Egyptians threw out the colonial powers, they formed a new union with Syria called the United Arab Republic. Mm -hmm. Lasted for like five or six years, I think. The Iraqi leader at the time, Abdul Karim Qasim, Qasim, he was, you know, beforehand, he was like, yeah, yeah, we could probably join that. And then when it actually happened, they were like, ah, nah, you know, better not to, don't don't, don't want to get involved kind it's of thing. fresh kind of maybe. Yeah. yeah. But obviously like that pan-Arab nationalist thing, that's what Saddam and his party, they wanted that. Mm-hmm. So when Abdul Karim Qasim, the president at the time, opted not to join it, they were like pretty angry, obviously. And so the Ba'athist group that Saddam was a part of began to organize an assassination. Mm-hmm. Saddam was recruited as like the cover guy. Okay. So he it was like 22 at this point. Yeah. Right. It's crazy young. They were supposed to ambush his car, right? Evidently, Saddam just started blasting too early and threw the whole synchronization off. Mm. The assassins, they killed his chauffeur and they hit Kasim, the president, but he did survive. They hit him in the shoulder or something like that. 
They also made the schoolboy rookie error, you might say, of attacking the car from both sides. So uh-huh. the bullets that missed the target hit each other, yeah. which is... There's, a, there's at least something to laugh at there. Saddam took a bullet to the leg during this. Mm-hmm. Obviously survived. You can't blame Saddam himself too much. He didn't get any training because he was just brought in at the last minute to fill for somebody else's job who had dropped out, I yeah. guess. He's never had any proper military training or anything like okay, that. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's generally accepted that the Egyptian government were you know, involved in this some way. And probably the Americans too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't be proved, of course, because the CIA documents are still classified or redacted to hell, you know? Yeah, so 50, 60 years, they'll be, they'll yeah, be out there. But you're like, it would be very on-brand for the CIA. Yeah. Getting involved in foreign policy. Yeah, so <laughs> this story becomes a huge part of the propaganda around the cult of personality that was to come later for Saddam. They turn the story into a dramatic thing, like he had to dig the bullet out of his own flesh with a pair of pliers or whatever. He saved his comrades from being tortured by the government at the time, yeah. that kind of shit. The savior kind of Yeah, thing. you know, he secretly escaped the police going door to door until he could make it across the desert to Syria to safety, that yeah. kind of shit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. From this point, he actually traveled on to Egypt, who were, again, sympathetic to the assassination attempt, probably involved in it themselves in some way. Mm-hmm. He went back to university there and he studied law again, but he didn't complete that degree this either, time either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he hung out in Egypt for a few years until the government back in Iraq, the Qasim government, was overthrown in a coup. CIA was probably behind this one. Surprise. They really did kill Abdul Karim Qasim this time. Yeah. It's actually called the Ramadan Revolution, which really has a nice ring to it, to be fair. If you look up the Wikipedia page, the image is just the dead body of this guy shot in the head slumped in a corner of some... Okay, so he really did die. Yeah, Yeah, they fucking... They got him that time. They didn't miss. So Saddam returned to Iraq in 1963. After the coup. After the coup, <clears throat> started planning to assassinate the new president. Oh my God. Abdul Sarim Arif, who had just overthrown the previous regime. They caught Saddam, however, and his, his mates, I suppose. And he was sent to prison for two years before he escaped with the help from some guards. I guess the guards were also, you know, probably sympathetic to, the sympathetic course, to yeah. his cause, pan-Arabic uh, nationalists as well. A couple years later, in 1968, he was part of a successful coup that then overthrew that government. <laughs> so, so he's been involved in two there's different about, coups yeah, there's and about, gone to prison for the first one. He tried the first time and he fled got to in, Egypt. Got somebody, else, the first one. somebody else succeeded while he was studying in Egypt. Yeah. He came back, then got thrown into prison for trying to overthrow that government. Then when he got out of prison, then they managed to overthrow the government. Yeah. This was in 1968. He was part of a coup that overthrew the government again. He became the vice president. On paper, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakir was the president, but it soon became clear, like, who was really calling the shots. Pulling the strings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Al-Bakir was the older, more, like, statesmanly sort of Mm. face of things. figurehead, kind of. Yeah, so it kind of worked well for the image side of things, Mm. but Saddam was apparently, like, the mastermind of it. Now, in 1972, a few years later, Saddam organized the seizure of all the oil digging infrastructure that was owned by foreign companies in Iraq. Yeah. I don't know exactly what companies were there, but you can imagine, you know. I think definitely BP, Shell. Stuff stuff like that. that. Some of the big French ones, those Mm. kind of things. And so he he kicked all the foreign investment companies out, told them to fuck off, and nationalized all that infrastructure. That goes hard. Yeah. It was kind of of hardcore. And one year later, in 1973... global oil the 1973 energy crisis hits and iraq makes fucking bank yeah of course Mm. i think iraq and uh, kuwait make absolute bank of this because they both did that 
So Saddam uses all this oil money to increase social spending programs on schooling, healthcare, other social programs, all that kind of shit. Okay, that goes good. Perhaps the most obvious example of this was his establishment of the national campaign against illiteracy and making all education free. Mm-hmm. Like you say, that sounds good, right? For this, he was given an award by UNESCO. The okay. United Nations, whatever the fuck that stands for. something <laughs> Society, culture, something else. Yeah, yeah. So he was considered a pretty top dude, I guess, by the time. And apparently the campaign against illiteracy went really good. Literacy rates like skyrocketed in Iraq. Yeah, that's good. Saddam Hussein also implemented policies to promote women's rights within Iraq. Women in the 1970s made up a large proportion of many professional fields like teaching, doctors, dentists, etc., etc. At least to begin with, he didn't really care what religion you followed. He focused on being Arab first. Yeah. As opposed to like... Religion first. Religion, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it probably changed a little bit later on in his... Thing, but you may have started to wonder what was really so bad about Saddam Hussein after all. Well, <laughs> ah, well. He's not called the butcher of Baghdad no. for his social welfare policies. Well, Let's start with the week he officially became president of Iraq in 1979. He'd been vice, vice president for about 10 years mm-hmm. at this point. He organized a meeting of a large group of Ba'ath party leaders and made sure that it would be videotaped and distributed amongst the people. Now, they just got a phone call. They're like, come to the meeting. And they were like, okay, what? what's going on? Hmm? During this meeting, he claimed to have uncovered a secret plot to betray him. He forced one guy to confess and then read out a list of 68 alleged co-conspirators who were conspiring to overthrow him. Uh, And they were all tried and found guilty. A bunch of them were executed. Bizarre. They were probably just guys he just didn't like in the party, right? But To video it all as well. Yeah, well, it was, you know, a very deliberate... Propaganda this, machine. This is what happens when you... Massive hell. Yeah, when you fuck with the man, mm. Saddam Hussein. You'd really be sweating in this situation, though, eh? Yeah. I guess after a couple guys get dragged out, you'd be like, oh, I see what's going on here. Yeah. Oh, fuck. And we can't leave. Oh, oh shit. fuck. Yeah. So apparently a few of them unprompted just started standing up and screaming out their support for him in this kind of shit ah, in yeah. fear that they were going to be the next one on the list. So that's sort of his background. The next couple points we've got here are just his war crimes, essentially. When he's president, yeah. Yeah. Um, should we break it up with a tune? And yeah, let's have a nice <laughs> song before the war crimes. You know, uh, okay, well, this awesome. one's called Lamborghini Girls, God's Country. Hi, this is Ed from Bombay Bicycle Club, and you're listening to K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You're listening to K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. This is Ordinary Observations, and we're discussing insane dictators. We just were covering the early life of Saddam Hussein, mm. and uh, now, Jack, you're going to take us through his... His what? war crimes. His, yeah. His, uh, yeah. Yeah. His war crimes. Yeah, crimes against humanity. Nothing mm-hmm. short. Get straight into it. Why the, not? The Anfell campaign of the late 80s has been recognized as a genocide against the Kurdish and some other ethnic minorities that were living in northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, close to Turkish border, I believe. Yeah, again, so like we mentioned before, he wasn't too concerned, at least to begin with, about your religion, mm. but he was very Arab nationalist. Mm-hmm. So ethnic minorities he wasn't fucking with. Yeah. Estimated kill between fifty to 100,000 uh, Kurdish and other ethnic minorities during that campaign. One of the most heinous parts of this campaign was in 1988, the city of Halabja, which is in Iraqi Kurdistan, was attacked with mustard gas and nerve agent chemicals by the Iraqi army, killing up to 5,000 people and injuring thousands more. Jesus Christ. Mm. There's reports of this from survivors that say that when it happened, the planes flew over and dropped some shit, and 
then they like could smell these like sweet sweet apple sort of smell mm. and so that was an enticement kids started running out and be like oh this smells nice you know and it's a fucking poison gas kills people that's sort of the kind of meat and potatoes of what saddam's rule was really all about he was like big on mass killings there's actually a wikipedia page titled list of massacres in iraq and it's broken into four sections based on time so you've got your pre-20th century, you've got your 20th century before Saddam, you've got your Saddam era, and then you've got the 2003 and afterwards, which is when Saddam's regime was ousted by the American invasion, right? Yeah. So you know you're a pretty bad person when the Wikipedia list of massacres it's delineates like, time based on your existence. Like three quarters of you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you're the marker in the sand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, the list of mass killings under Saddam Hussein includes the Unfell Campaign, which we just mentioned, the genocide, as well as many other systematic killings, ranging in number from, like, you know, tens of people to thousands of people at the time. Another example of this is the Abu Ghraib prison purge, which had around 4,000 prisoners executed to make space for more prisoners. Abu Ghraib, by the way, is also that prison the Americans started torturing captives in. Yeah, the famous one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm i didn't realize that it was they just used the same place yeah awful different different captors i guess the minister of prisons or whatever minister of justice was like saddam prisons are full bro you you can't keep sending people here we gotta fix this gotta build another one or something yeah Yeah, then he was like no we don't just get rid of kill him yeah Mm. when the americans and the brits invaded iraq and started going through places they found just countless torture chambers and prisons and government buildings Mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing yeah, so they they were looking for weapons of mass destruction. Nuclear o- os- weapons. Ostensibly. Yeah. But the thing is, he never had the nuclear weapons, but for sure the chemical ones. Oh, I think... Like the ones he used. After that time, he invaded Kuwait, right? Yeah. And then so after he got kicked out of Kuwait by the Americans, then they made him disarm those chemical weapons. Mm. So at this time, he didn't have any weapons of mass destruction anymore. They specifically didn't oust him from government in general because he was anti-Iranian as well. Yeah. And they liked that he was anti-Iranian. Yeah, they had the Iraq-Iran war as well. Yeah, exactly. So they didn't like him, but they didn't like the Iranians either. Mm. So if they kept him there to keep pestering the Iranians, that they got each other to fuck around with. Mm. They don't believe that he had any actual weapons of mass destruction. Definitely not nukes anyway. Mm -hmm. So that's the part about finding torture chambers everywhere. And all these government buildings, just, you know, every small town, they fucking roll through, find signs. kind of prison. Yeah, find a little prison somewhere in, in a little government building that definitely didn't need to be a prison, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And super paranoid, would just kill people, torture people, lock them up, disappear people for any sort of suspicion that they might be working against the government, like that kind of thing. Conspiracy, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Another good example of that is he ordered the draining of 900 square kilometer area of marshland because he believed the marsh Arab tribes that lived there, sort of like on the border of Iran, between Iran and Iraq, he believed that they were colluding with the Iranians during that Iran-Iraq war we were just talking about. So he just drained the swamp. Yeah, it destroyed their whole way of life. Yeah, it destroyed their livelihood, their homes. It's been like that for like 6,000 years or something and he got rid of it. Yeah. Now, for the listeners, I'm particularly sorry. I know the whole point of the show was to have a laugh at the quirky behaviors the dictators often develop through years of absolute power. Mm. The Saddam rabbit hole really really got away on me, to be yeah. honest with you. So, here's some actually deranged shit on Saddam. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know what I mean. Yeah. Some deranged shit that's at least a little bit funny. Well, maybe more lighthearted, perhaps. Mm. Hopefully. He wrote a best-selling romance book called Sabiba and the King. Oh. 
Mm. Fair enough. The author wanted to stay anonymous, but Iraqi newspapers began to report that Saddam was the real author. The book became an immediate bestseller and was turned into a musical. For some reason, the CIA have confirmed that they believe he at least supervised the writing of this book. <laughs> they just wanted to, like, make sure. <laughs> yeah, I was like, the CIA won't tell us anything of real substance. No, they're but- like... Oh, by the way, not, not much about this torture chambers or the gold we maybe yeah. removed, but he definitely wrote a good... He wrote that romance book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they keep throwing us these fucking breadcrumbs yeah. about shit. But it's just different directions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Saddam Hussein pledged $94 million in humanitarian aid to the United States. That's kind of funny. Mm. Mm. To be used to help the homeless and the wretched Americans living in poverty. Mm. I no. wonder what they do with that. Do they send it back? They don't send it no, back. No, well, they, they never sent it in the first because he, he promised it. Ah. And then the 2003 invasion came. And, <laughs> He's like, so got better things to do. Probably got other places to spend my money now. He did, however, send money to the Detroit congregation run by Reverend Jacob Yasso in Detroit. $250,000. Okay. Saddam invited the Reverend to come visit him in Iraq. And the Reverend gave him the key to Detroit as a gift from the mayor. That's, that's cool. He's got the key. Well, not anymore, I guess, because he's dead. But he had. He had the key to the city of Detroit. And so then Saddam gave them another $200,000. Nice. Apparently, the congregation was a Chaldean Christian, which has roots in modern-day Iraq. Mm. So he felt some, you know, some affiliation, I suppose. There, yeah. Which, again, sort of reinforces the point about not really caring too much about your religion. Like religion aspect, just the ethnic background, allegedly. Uh, at, at least on the surface of things. Mm. He offered to debate George Bush on CBS News before the 2003 invasion. Could have helped. Yeah, apparently he wanted to talk it out and avoid the war, but the White House said it wasn't a serious offer. But why not just check? Yeah, well, he said, genuinely, I'm being earnest here, but it obviously never happened. Hmm. The White House had their obvious reasons why they weren't going to do this, but, you know, imagine if that had saved us the whole fucking Iraq war. Yeah. Hmm? He commissioned the Quran to be written in his own blood. That's that's deranged behavior. Oh, well, the first tick of the day. <laughs> Apparently, this is like mega haram and yeah, in ev- sure. every sect of Islam as well. For sure. So, yeah, you know, apparently it took the guy two years and 50 pints of his blood to write 336,000 words of the Holy Quran. Oh, my God. Yeah, doctors say you would need to space that out over about nine years if you wanted to donate that much blood safely. This is a m- massive project. Then. I can't imagine being the guy commissioned to write the Holy Quran in Saddam Hussein's blood. Just sitting there with a couple pints of it, dimping your ink pen in there. Medieval scribe. Yeah, well then, what if you spelt something wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. To the torture chamber. Indeed. It might explain, you know, a few things, though. Lack of blood to the head. Deranged decision making. Yeah. Um, Fantastic moustache. True, true. Why is it? And and it went hard with the beret thing that he used to wear all the time as well. That's a classic also with modern dictators. Always the beret. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you say, dictators as well having great moustaches. Saddam. Stalin. Stalin. Mm. Hitler. Yeah. Also, Mugabe had a small one. Mm. Tiny toothbrush stache. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, 2006 came along and Saddam Hussein was found guilty of crimes against humanity and sentenced to death by hanging. Yeah. That was a whole lot less funny than I anticipated, honestly. Yeah, but shout out to yourself for your hungover detective work. Yeah. Mm. Ah, good job. Yeah, genuinely hope nobody was too offended by any of that. I hope that we did justice in reporting that as accurately as possible. Mm. But now you know a few more things about Saddam Hussein, I suppose. Tune. Yeah, yeah, mate. Y'all doing really good. All I need some rund vibe, Brishan. Y'all doing music. Y'all grinding.
Santa Barb Locam Fenton Sexton. Alright, you're listening to K103 Gothenburg Student Radio with Ordinary Observations this cold, wet, windy Wednesday evening. We've just gone through Saddam Hussein and his atrocities. Who we got next, Mark? On to another one. Mm -hmm. Robert Mugabe. Oh, dear. Of Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. I imagine that most listeners have heard of him, heard about him, perhaps. I think so. Yeah. So, Robert Mugabe started off as a school teacher, actually. Um, The former president of Zimbabwe, who was in power first as prime minister of Zimbabwe from 1980 to 1987, then as president of Zimbabwe from 1987 to 2017. Mm. Uh, 40 years yeah and uh, when he died he was the oldest head of state in the entire world at 95 years old fucking hell yeah Joe Biden will be there soon yeah for sure (laughs) (laughs) widely known for his controversial actions and statements during his nearly 40 years in power which we'll dive right into yeah I always get confused when a country has both a prime minister and a president yeah I don't know actually how it works because yeah you never know doesn't have one so I don't know how it works no and then France has I don't know what Fra- France has both but then you're like shit they've got a prime minister what the fuck does he do then yeah because all you hear about is Macron yeah but then there's situations like this where they've got where he's both yeah, yeah. well <laughs> no, that, I mean like P- the- Putin and he was a prime minister of yeah. Russia for a long time same right? with Erdogan he was also the prime minister first yeah and it's like well, what did they do when they're prime minister if- well um, with Mugabe in this case he mm. just gave himself the presidency he oh, decided okay. prime minister wasn't enough naturally yeah mm. so when he first came to power as an army leader in the fight against the white minority in the previous nation of Rhodesia which mm. was uh, formerly owned by the British so he was an army leader in this fight and which eventually led to Zimbabwe's independence in 1980 and M- Mugabe started off with talks of democracy and prosperity but this kind of changed so he was the first prime minister of the independent Zimbabwe sure yeah one of the key controversial decisions he made was giving the rebel fighters who fought with him in this fight for independence massive state pensions as okay. rewards for their contributions to the independent state of Zimbabwe mm-hmm. which eventually uh, bankrupted the nation right. they, they won mega mega big amounts of money right Mugabe set about with changes in the late 90s when he was then the president of Zimbabwe. One of his most controversial things was taking away farms from white farmers and giving them to black Zimbabweans as a move that he claimed was reparations for colonialism and for economic prosperity for the poorer black majority of the country, which at the start was super popular Mm. because it was kind of like white farm owners have been owning all this land and there were super modernized farms as well. As a minority as well, yeah. As a minority in the country, Mm. clearly the wealthiest of the country, so giving back to the people. You can see why they would be popular. Yeah, yeah, for sure. However, this didn't go down so well. As much as it was initially an idea to give these farms away to black Zimbabweans, they were given to random people with little to zero farming knowledge. Yeah. Changing the country from a net exporter of food to a net importer of food over over a matter of years. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, very very quickly. Yeah. Also, those who were like prime beneficiaries of the actual farms were people super close to him and other politicians, friends and family. Uh Uh-huh. Who also didn't know how to farm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Into the war crimes, mate. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. When he was res- came into power, he was responsible for a massacre of 20,000 civilians of a tribe who did not fight for the independence of the country. Jesus. Before this, in 1981, so a year into becoming prime minister, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. But this was withdrawn after the massacre was had come to light they from were. the international community. Okay. Why was he nominated in the first place? I think it was the idea that he 
is like a, a light for like a new independent Zimbabwe kind okay, of thing. Right. After like years of British colonialism. Mm-hmm. But then they're like, yeah, the first thing he did was kill a load of people. That, <laughs> didn't, that, that didn't help him to get take there. that away from him. Yeah. Uh, okay. So he stayed in power for over 35 years in Zimbabwe, but this wasn't due to people exactly loving him. He regularly used intimidation tactics and meddled in the elections. Mm. And in the election of 2008, when he actually lost it, mm-hmm. he just decided to void the vote entirely. So he wins it now because he was the president before. They didn't have a vote right? in his books, you know? Yeah. And then he persecuted anyone who stood up against him after that or had them tortured. Mm. And uh, the meddling actually goes super deep, so a little <laughs> depraved moment, when in the year 2000, he actually won the Zimbabwean National Lottery. <laughs> What? Because he just ripped up everyone else's. <laughs> oh, fucking <laughs> As if he wasn't already the richest yeah, guy. As if he needed the money. He yeah. won like 100 million Zimbabwe dollars at the time. Yeah. Mm. Then there's the economic part of his reign. Right. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. What's it's the point coming. In, what's the point in winning the lottery in Zimbabwe? Yeah. When he took control in the 1980s, Zimbabwe was one of the wealthiest countries of southern Africa with a strong agricultural industry, so these massive modernized farms, and also diamond mines. Mugabe used this wealth of the country to bribe people into keeping him in power, first of all, rewarding his allies who fought with him and sure. who continued to be loyal to him until the money quickly was running out. Right. So he started off by taxing the country's very poor population massively. But again, if they aren't earning anything, there's not a lot to tax. Yeah. You know? And around the early 2000s is where this consistent stealing of riches and taxation all hit the fan. When one in three Zimbabweans were dying from starvation and nearly half the country had left to work elsewhere. So what's the solution to this all? Jesus. Well, little economics lesson. Mugabe decided to start printing more money for the country. Fucking loads more money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So an increase in the total supply of money printed did not lead to an increase in productivity and output for the Zimbabwean economy as there was little to no outside investment coming into the country because they're scared of this mad dictator who's been in charge for many years. Yeah. And also because of like he's destroyed all the industry, they're not actually producing more goods. Yeah. So the outcome of this is just more money needed to buy the exact same amount of goods or services, meaning you need more Zimbabwean dollars to buy the same amount of things as before. Simple problem to solve. Yeah. And the result of this is the price is rising quickly. And in the case of Zimbabwe insanely <laughs> just quick. print more money yeah just keep it going why can't we just print more mm. you don't get the t- title of world's worst economy for nothing it takes a fair <laughs> bit of effort to get there and as the prices continue to rise the government was printing more and more money to try and keep up with these prices mm. and this vicious cycle continued and continued and continued by the year 2006 six years after mugabe started this uh, printing more money the quantitative easing Prices of in Zimbabwe were rising at 1,000% a year. Now, we complain in Sweden when it's like 10% yeah, a year 10% increase. Of, yeah, 10% of inflation was fucked up last year, but 1,000% a year. Yeah. Now, there are obviously super famous pictures of Zimbabweans, all of them multi-millionaires at this point, yeah. uh, taking wheelbarrows of cash to try and um, go to the supermarket. Yeah, most millionaires in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Zimbabwe. Yeah. 50 cent, his How- name in Zimbabwean, <laughs> 120 trillion, I think. <laughs> 120 trillion dollars. Yeah. And uh, for reference, a single chicken in 2006 cost a million Zimbabwe dollars. So people are having to take so much cash everywhere, you know? Yeah. With a wheelbarrow, literally. Mm. And this came to a crashing halt in 2008 when the government of Zimbabwe printed the highest denomination of currency ever recorded, the $100 trillion note, 
which was worth an astonishing 40 US cent. Like you say, that makes 50 cents Zimbabwean name. 120 or something. 120 yeah. trillion dollars. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Mugabe finally gave in to this massive pressure and let foreign currency transactions be legal in the country, resulting in the immediate adoption of the US dollar. Right. So something that actually has uh, a value. I was wondering if that was a thing, if, it, if yeah. that was allowed or not. So actually, a lot of countries that have had these problems do immediately adopt the US dollar mm. because they need to like have normal prices How do you, again. Yeah, where do you get the US dollar from, though? Well, you have like foreign reserves. You know, I mean, if yeah. you've had, if you've been hoarding just more and more cash, but, it, but it's also surely not legal from the U.S. perspective either. Yeah, they just get. No. Yeah, I don't know. Now back to Mugabe. Mm-hmm. As we discussed, the economy was incredibly poor, and so were the people. Mm-hmm. The, this is a country with ninety percent unemployment rate. Doctors in the country earn seventy U.S. dollars a month. It didn't stop Mugabe and his wife, <laughs> with the nickname of Gucci Grace. Oh, Christ. Her name was Grace Mugabe, Gucci Grace, <laughs> living an extremely lavish lifestyle. Gucci Grace was caught in a $1 million ring scandal. So her, her wedding ring cost a $1 million. Mm. And their firstborn son, Russell Mugabe, spent $3.6 million on Rolls Royces. And Robert Mugabe Jr., um, another of their sons, spent 600000 US dollars on a watch. At the time, Zimbabweans couldn't even withdraw a single dollar from their bank accounts. And, uh, more recently, because uh, he, he stayed in power till he was 95 years old, more recently at Robert Mugabe's 90th birthday party back in 2014, guests were served elephant, which uh, what? the people were extremely horrified about when yeah. they were told. He was like, well, it's a delicacy. <laughs> he served the elephant. <laughs> Fucking hell. The party cost over a million US dollars of taxpayer money. Christ. Now, some more insane off-the-cuff stuff he's said. He openly proposed marriage to the then U.S. First Lady Michelle Obama. Mugabe made this bizarre proposal during a speech at the African Union Summit, stating that he admired Michelle Obama's beauty and that he regretted not having met her before. Wow. (laughs) Just just straight. That's ballsy. Yeah, you've got to admire the confidence, (laughs) I suppose. And he... Especially how old... When was that? Uh, In 2015. The man was 91. He was 91. And she was not. <laughs> Barack was himself present, yeah. presumably. The confidence and, of the man. And he also said, at the age of 90 years old, I have died many times. That's where I've beaten Christ. Christ died once and resurrected once. I have died and resurrected, and I don't know how many times I will die and resurrect. <laughs> well, he did, in the year, I think 2018, die at the age of 97 years old. He also died in a Singapore hospital. Really? Where he destroyed the entire health industry of the entire country. Huh. So he just fled to Singapore after they put him under house arrest. In Zimbabwe? Yeah. Because at the age of 95, they put him under house arrest because the people had finally had enough. Huh. Okay. And the army turned on him. And, really? Um, yeah, he fled to Singapore and died in mm. a Singapore hospital. And that's the go. story of Robert Mugabe. That's... Tune time, please. Tune time, <laughs> mate. This one's MC Ron and Shirt a Man Beat. Hej, det är vi som är i Konapop. Jag tycker ni ska lyssna på K103, för de är bäst. Yep, K103, Gotham Oaks Student Radio, Ordinary Observations. We're talking Terrible Dictators of Modern Era, part two. We've gone through Saddam Hussein, we've gone through Robert Mugabe. Who are we going through next, Mark? King Maswati III of Swaziland. All right. And now, this is a man who is the last absolute monarch of Africa. Did he do anything funny, or are we going to hear a whole lot oh, just more... Some funny. Some human rights abuses mm, well, again. shit, now I look at it, not so much funny. But uh, uh, okay. we have to go. We're going in. Fuck. So, he had absolutely absurd amounts of wealth in one of the poorest countries in the world. Mm-hmm. 60% of the country live on less than $1 a day. That's poor. Now, 
the ruler of Africa, one of Africa's poorest nations, one of the world's poorest nations, he has 13 wives. Poor. Yeah. And every Damn. year he hosts a dance competition where 11,000 bare-breasted virgins compete to become wife number 14. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That's, that's no bit, fun. That's fucked up. Now, when a photograph of a new 500,000 US dollar car purchased by the king emerged, Maswati banned photography of his vehicles entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, he wants to hide it away. Uh, that's a simple solution, man. Yeah. That's what I would do as well. Yeah. The Swazi government, which he has complete control over, the last absolute monarch. So that means he decides the prime minister every year. Ha! <laughs> Fuck. Okay. Yeah. He decides who's in the parliament yeah. also. Mm. And yeah, he does what he wants. He's in charge. Yeah. Mm. The Swazi government mandated a 10% cut in civil servant salaries while simultaneously approving a larger annual allowance for the king from <laughs> 24 million US dollars to 30 million US dollars Jesus. in 2011. Do you know what the life expectancy of this country is? Can't be great. 45 years old. In Swaziland? Yeah. Wow, okay. Uh, 25% of the country have HIV Oof. or AIDS, and it's the highest rate in the entire world. Are they still called Swaziland? Well, I'm getting on to that. Okay. He became king at just 18 years old, which was the youngest monarch in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. And he's famous for his most insane collection of cars. He's got 20 Rolls Royce and 120 BMWs and I think four private jets. Wow. So, but what's, I mean, he's what's got the, insane wealth, basically. What's the point in having all those things if you can't even be photographed in them? What's, where's he flexing these things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Mm. How does he get to flex his wealth? Yeah, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you said, is it still called Swaziland? That's the thing. He decided on the morning of his 50th birthday in 2018, without consulting anyone in charge, to change the name of the country from Swaziland to Eswatini. He decided that. Oh, he's the king, mate. Absolute monarch. Because I've been going around, uh, I'll say Eswatini, and people are like, what the fuck's that? Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, I used to be called Swaziland. And they're like, oh, okay, Swaziland. And I'm all here, like, sitting high and mighty, like, yes, I know all the new geographical terms. Yeah. <laughs> I'm up to date yeah, with everything. Yeah. yeah, it's like the person that says but, Chechia as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But n- now I feel dumb. Now I feel like I've betrayed the people of Swaziland or Iswatini by just well, he giving just into wanted, the wills of... He just wanted a more African name. He didn't want Swaziland because that's the British name. Right. Yeah. Is, does Iswatini have any, like, is there a reason that's yeah, called it, that? Yeah, I think previously way back it was called SWT. okay so is anybody is it is this popular decision <laughs> I, I, is I that an opposition <laughs> yeah i guess not i mean <laughs> that's a king maswati of eswatini i suppose all right who else you got you want more yeah we got time for one more all right the worst one i'm sorry what, how, how's it getting worse from this point You'll see. Francis Aguema of Equatorial Guinea. This uh-huh. man was pure evil. I had to research a lot for this. And as you said, it's just gross researching. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't even sure if he should be in this as he's nicknamed the world's most brutal dictator. So please stop listening now. I know we're late into the episode, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, from the years 1968 to 1979, not that long. Let's be honest. 11 years in power. Yeah. Francis Nguema was responsible for the deaths of a third of the entire country's population of Equatorial Guinea. Jesus fucking Christ. Going on an insane killing spree targeting intellectuals, any potential opposition and dissidents. And it did not stop there as he also had everyone associated to those he was after also killed. So families, relatives, friends, anyone who knows the person yeah. also killed. Yeah. He was also known to have slaughtered entire villages if even one of the people in the village were a suspect. Fuck. On Christmas Eve 1969, Nguema had 168 suspected dissidents executed in the National Football Stadium in Malabo 
as amplifiers were playing Mary Hopkins' song, Those Were the Days. 150 of the dissidents were shot or hanged, and the others were forced to dig ditches in which they were buried up to their necks and eaten alive by red ants over the next few days. Oh. Yeah. What the hell, man? (laughs) Exactly. What the hell? Uh. Yeah, and on October 18th, 1971, a new law was created making it a capital offense to threaten government officials. Insulting or offending the president in any way was punishable by up to 30 years in prison. Mm. Now, Nguema, he's a psychopath, right? Like an actual one. Oh. And uh, he suffered from extreme paranoia and saw plots against his life and rule everywhere. Mm-hmm. He, maybe also schizophrenic. And as time went on, he ordered the mass murder of government ministers, members of National Assembly, and other officials. He also suffered from visions which influenced his laws that he brought about by turning on his own government at the time and mass murdering them. Anyway, at the time he was president, there was a single road out of Equatorial Guinea into Gambia, which he had landmined, mm. and he put spikes in to ban anyone from leaving. He also banned any ships leaving Equatorial Guinea and banned fishing so no one could leave. And his reign of terror finally came to an end when his own private army decided it was time to save face. And his nephew, who's now the president of Equatorial Guinea, you'll, you'll have to know. <laughs> yeah. He also decided to save his face because he was also involved in many war crimes. Mm-hmm. In 1980, he took over and is still president today. Before he was ev- eventually captured, Francis Nguema, and put on trial, he was shot by firing squad. He burnt the country's entire 100 million US dollar cash reserve and fled to the jungle where he was what? found. Why was it in cash? Uh, they didn't have, man, a, it's they didn't 19, have a bank account somewhere? Not, no, he got rid of the whole central bank. Fuck. They didn't have anyone who knew how to operate an international bank account. It was just cash. Oh, that's, that's fucked up, mate. Yeah, sorry, there wasn't even anything like, <laughs> he's also a bit goofy, you know? Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, this was a real departure from the... The vibe of how our shows usually go. Yeah, I'm so, really sorry. Yeah, I apologize. I apologize already. I apologize next yeah, week. Yeah, we'll apologize well. next week. We'll find something cute to talk about next week. Uh, yeah. That's all the time we've got. Thanks for listening, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for making it all the way through. Yep. This one's Ellis Everson King. You've just heard a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.